Welcome to Trainer Talk. I'm Max Bevilacqua. And I'm Gwen Krause. We're international negotiation practitioners who missed our colleagues so much during the pandemic that we created this podcast so we could talk to them. On our show, Trainer Talk, we interview professional negotiators about how they apply theory to real-world problems. Today, our guest is Sam Argery. Sam is a mediator who's mediated more than 4,000 disputes, and he teaches negotiation at the Indiana Youth University Moore School of Law. Sam is a nationwide consultant and the author of a book called Positively Conflicted. Today, we're going to talk to Sam about how he applies mediation and negotiation methodology in his book and in his life. Welcome, welcome, Sam, to Trainer Talk. We're so excited to have you. Um, you have thousands of mediation cases under your belt um, and many positions, and I'd love to just turn it over to you to introduce yourself to our audience. Oh, well, thank you. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I, I've uh, been a litigator and a, and a mediator for got like 37 or 38 years. My first 12 or 13 years were exclusively litigation. And I think I may have shared with you before that I went to mediation training to find out what they were going to do to me. I had no interest in becoming a mediator. Uh, and then I did uh, one mediation and, and then 4,000. So the, the, and then I became an, an author and speaker just kind of out of doing some of those things. And what, what I found, and I teach negotiation at the IU Mauer School of Law. What I found is a lot of the common sense stuff that we think works uh, in mediation doesn't and negotiation doesn't work quite as well as we think. And, and I, we all are kind of drawn toward comfort and away from fear. And there's something about conflict and something about negotiation and mediation that kind of tweaks us uh, and makes us want to run from it. And, and I'm no different. I don't like conflict. I don't think any better than anybody else. And sometimes I, I do it as poorly as anybody else. But that's really kind of what I found is, is that the human condition is one where we're negotiating things all the time and we can be in conflict without having anybody else in the room. Um, and once I came to see some things like that, it, it helped me relate to people better uh, and have different kinds of conversations than I used to I, once I got out of litigator mode and pounding the table. So uh, among the things that I've found is in law schools, we talk a lot about convincing and we talk a lot about advocacy when influence is a far better skill uh, and more useful to us. Uh, so that's a short summary. And, and uh, I'm, like I said, I'm delighted to be here and happy to talk about and with this conversation wherever you wish to go. Great. We are so happy to have you. Um, and I just wanted to hear a little bit more about the shift from litigator to mediator. Um, what are the major things that had to shift in your consciousness? Well, one thing is I had to think less about myself, ironically. Um, one, one would think as a litigator that you're not thinking about yourself, you're thinking about your client. But I find that the pride and ego and performative piece of it is so compelling that I can justify almost anything and say, well, it's really for my client. Um, and as a mediator, I, I had to, to think very differently and relate to people in both rooms and what I found is that old mode of, of advocacy when I'm arguing in front of a judge or arguing with another lawyer, I learned those things really didn't work very well. Uh, and in fact, they probably didn't work very well when I was a litigator either. I just didn't realize it. Uh, so as I would find people in, 
the, the need to relate to people that were in different rooms with different priorities uh, and, and help them find face-saving alternatives or ways to say things differently than they were inclined because they were just as much in advocacy mode as I was. Uh, they all came in thinking they were right. And in some cases, in disbelief, why would there ever be a lawsuit here? Because I've got the most common sense of anybody in the world. If you could just get this other person to have common sense. And I, I was actually thinking about it because this comes up a lot. I was in mediations, one room or the other, or any one of the 10 or 20 rooms, somebody will say, what you need to make them understand is, or uh, have, do they understand that? Uh, and my response to that has changed uh, because I don't always know what somebody has understood or not understood. And, and I'll say, I, I, let me understand, do my best to understand what you're telling me. I can share with you, to the extent it's not confidential, what I've shared with the other side. Whether they've understood it or not, I just don't know. Uh, but I think we're moving the right direction. And there's a story I love, and you may have heard it. Have you heard Daniel Kahneman talk about being at uh, a cocktail party with his wife? Well, any, Daniel Kahneman tells this story, and I don't think it's in Thinking Fast and Slow, but I heard him tell it in an interview. It's among my favorite stories. He's at a cocktail party with his wife, and she leans over and points to somebody across the room and says, he's really sexy. He undresses the maid himself. And Kahneman's thinking, what in the heck is she talking about? And they get home that night, and they're, they're talking, and they sit down at a couple of chairs. And, and he said, you know, honey, what, what were you talking about, that he's really sexy, undresses the maid himself? And she said, I never said that. I said, he's really sexy. He doesn't underestimate himself. Um, and, as Con and what I love about that story is Daniel Kahneman is, you know, is a Nobel Prize winner and, and one of the brightest people in the world. It never occurred to him that he may have misunderstood. The only thing he thought about in those few hours is that she must have said something that didn't make any sense. Uh, and, and I think if somebody that's as sophisticated as that can live with a misunderstanding and think there's no possibility of a misunderstanding, then I don't feel quite as bad when I'm in those shoes. Um, and, and I find it happens all the time when we talk about understanding. But I'm thinking about Socrates, and I'm thinking about how you know, the declaration that I don't know anything from someone who we attribute to be one of the wisest people in perhaps human history. What is it with this paradoxical, you influence someone when you stop trying to push them, um, you start becoming smart by realizing your own limitations? What is going on there? Why is everything in negotiation so counterintuitive? Uh, well, I, we talk, we've discussed this a little bit, but I think it has to do with fear. I mean, I was talking to someone the other day, and th this is my own conclusion that I've reached after a long time, and I've only really reached it in an absolute sense more recently, is I think all my problems are ego-based. Th th there might be some exceptions to that, but when I think when I'm uncomfortable or when I don't like what's happening, it has something to do with an agenda I have, or I'm afraid of how I'm going to look, or I'm afraid that if somebody, and this kind of feeds into it, if they don't like me or I don't look good, then they won't hire me or they think less of me. Those, and, and, and that's at least the best. I can, and they're all ego-based at some level. It's about what people think of me. So unless I can push through that and say, people are going to think what they think. And you've probably heard the old adage, what other people think of me is none of my business. Um, I find it really helpful when I can internalize that, but I want you to know it's, a, it's, it's not easy. Um, so I... I so I think a lot of it is is fear-based. That's at least my approach. And, and even, and I think particularly for, for people that are relatively comfortable, I mean, I, I, I've, I, I don't suffer from uh, malnutrition. I've got a place to go home and sleep at night. 
Um, it's, it's safe where I live. Um, I, I think I even can get entitled to comfort. So there can be a little bit of fear of me losing comfort. Uh, so I, I, that, that's, I, I may be overstating fear and overstating ego, but I, I, I find it happens a lot of places. And when I find people responding in a way that from what I know seems disproportionate, it may not be, it seems very proportionate to them because it's in their head, they're responding in a way that's proportionate to whatever they're feeling. But it's a great time for me to stop rather than talk them out of it uh, or attempt to talk them out of it. Think, okay, something's going on there that I hadn't realized. I don't know what it is. Is there a way I can engage with them that doesn't make them more insecure, more vulnerable than they already are? And what can we do to get there? In your book, Positively Conflicted, um, you talk about getting people, instead of being righteous and right, seeing that they are part of the problem. You know, they want to blame the other side completely if they would just understand if they weren't so dumb, whatever that is. Um <laughs> How do you how do you help people turn from self-righteous uh, advocacy, you know, into really introspection? The, the place I will often start, which is counterintuitive for me, and it seems almost like it's it's feeding the beast a little bit in terms of our righteousness. I'll say, let's say you're right, because if when they're that righteous, my ability to to move them off that is probably pretty small because there's an adrenaline rush and there's something that they want and they're there with their lawyer and they're there with a mediator. They've got people in the other room. Um, so I'll often start with, let's say you're right. And, and then from there, I will do my best to shift, say, is there any of what you said, assuming it's right, that you think would help me influence the other person to move closer to where you are? Um, and it doesn't say that they're wrong. It doesn't offer for me to convince them, but it also often will move them from being defensive about that other person. I've not said the other person's right. It allows them to think about, oh, okay, I know I'm right. This other person hasn't gotten it so far. Maybe there is some way I can help this mediator go talk to them in a way that they can finally have some common sense. Uh, and it, it tends to invite a very different kind of conversation. The temperature usually will go down a bit. Um, and we'll have, and so I'm not saying anything wonderful about the other person. I'm not saying that, that the person who's all stirred up is right. But I'm saying, okay, I'll agree with you for purposes of this conversation that you're right. Now let's talk about where we go from here. Because my understanding is you've got this lawsuit going on, because I'm almost always doing litigated disputes. you got this lawsuit going on. We know that these settle 98% of the time. So what can I go talk to that other person to maybe bring them a step closer to have the conversation because, and, and then I'll ask often, sometimes I really do pause between my sentences. Um, and, and I'll ask, um, do, do you, do you think if they came in here, um, uh, that they're going to change your mind? And, th and they all, they usually say no. I say, so, okay, let's, let's see if together we can come up with some way to have that conversation differently. So it doesn't promise that I'm going to sprinkle any magic fairy dust on it. Um, it doesn't challenge them on their righteousness. It gives them a chance to fully participate, often with the help of their lawyer, particularly with good lawyers, on how we might have that conversation differently. There, there's something strange and religious to me about the negotiation world. Um, and that's kind of twofold. One is that there seems to be this kind of cult of personality that we assume that some people are naturally or divinely imbued with such grace and charisma that they actually do have fairy dust, or if it's not working, that it's the other people's fault. 
because they're so great and how dare other people not do it right. I'm curious if you can talk about that and just in terms of, you know, maybe even the, the business side or public facing marketing side of negotiation and, and what people think of when they hear about negotiation. I'm just curious about your thoughts there and how you handle that as someone who yourself has status in this world, um, but I've noticed continually throws it aside. Well, um, I haven't found anybody that really likes hearing somebody else's credentials um, and, and to tell somebody they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Um, I, I think the, the people that are hearing it get to decide that for themselves. Uh, and so I, I guess in the, in, in the, the, whether it's the marketing piece um, or what, what I might even call the humility piece and, and, uh, and, and maybe more importantly, just the be yourself piece, um, there, there is, I mean, I still get nervous when I do mediations. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not quite like going in front of a crowd and singing a song and I, and I can't carry tunes. That, that would be really scary. But I because I, I care about getting it done. I care what people think about me. I actually care about the people and the lawyers. I mean, they may, if they've hired me, I want to do a good job for them. Um, and so if, if with that degree of nervousness and the uncertainty, because we don't know if the case is going to settle, we don't know if I don't know the lawyers or the people, even if I've had some pre-mediation meetings, how that engagement is going to go. I mean, they're talking about things that they're really charged up about. So if I don't know all that, and then I add a, a performative layer, then I need to be somebody different from who I naturally am, then that, that's another level of stress for me to deal with. Um, I'm thinking, how do I perform with this person? And what I have found is most people can relate if you screw up. Um, they, they really can. I mean, they, they don't want you to be incompetent. And, and if, if I'd never done a mediation, I come in and I screw up from the get-go, then they're probably not going to hire me again and it's not going to work very well. But I, but I assume at least their lawyers have hired me because they believe me to at least be competent. So I, so I kind of get that piece going in. Um, and then the question becomes, how can I relate to those people? So when we talk, whether it's you know Caldini or somebody else, about uh, like likability matters. Um, and likability... I, I can be likable and find other people likable even if I disagree with them. The, the fact that we can engage in some way um, about things we might disagree about and not, not demonize the other side because they feel differently from the way we feel. And so maybe longer than you wanted, but that's what I would say. You, you got you to gotta be yourself. And I know that's, that's kind of an, an old cliche, but I, I, I mean, the truth is if, if I'm authentic, I can't be anything but myself anyway. Um, and, and that authenticity doesn't mean that you're the same necessarily in every circumstance. We're all nuanced. And there might be places where I let my hair down. I might use language differently than I would use in a formal setting with a mediation. Uh, and there might be things that I'm going to talk about with my dearest friends where my vulnerability is way more than it might be in a mediation. Sometimes vulnerability in a mediation will be going all day and we're not getting anywhere. And, and I'll come in and say to people, listen, you all have hired me to help you get there. And it seems like we've gone backwards. Can you help me with what I've screwed up today? Um, and in some ways, that lets them relax a little bit. It tends to encourage them to talk to me a little bit more. Um, and they may come up with things that I'm missing because, as I said, I, I don't have a magic formula. But I know most people want to be done, and I know 98% of the people do get done. And, and if we know, kind of have that overlay, then it, it tends to give people a little bit more freedom to talk about that. There are so many directions we can go here. One thing I just wanted to highlight is the straightforward but radical idea that you can disagree with someone and still be likable or how to disagree without being disagreeable 
how to be hard on the problem and soft on the person, which when I first came across the negotiation literature, I didn't realize you could do. And of course you can do it. Um, but I think that's one of the most beautiful qualities of a human to disagree and hold a perspective and still not be too disagreeable. Um, you also have talked about with Gwen and I the qualities of, of a mediator and what makes a mediator great. And I'm curious to kind of transition there if that works for everyone in terms of what you see. Well, I often with my negotiation students will give them a list of 10 qualities um, that mediators or people, they're not exclusive to mediators or negotiators, possess. And I ask them, I, I tell them, let's assume they are all important but if you have to rate them from top to bottom, which is a little bit of an unfair exercise, where, where would you put the priorities? Um, and there are, all 10 might be hard to do in, in, um, in an audio format, but the, the three that almost always come up, I mean, far and above the others when I put them on an Excel sheet and, and divide them up, the three that the students always have at the top are knowledge, let me get it right here so I, so I don't mess it up because I've written it down about six times, um, is knowledge, clarity and patience. Those are the three that they think are most important. And then there's a big drop with you. So knowledge is always way above the others and clarity and patience closely behind clarity and patience almost tied together. And at the bottom routinely are likability, humility, and compassion. So I have them do the exercise and th there aren't right or wrong answers. They have a right to feel about it however they want. So I don't go in telling them I'm right and they're wrong. But their bottom three are my top three. Um, I find that humility and compassion and likability for a negotiator are extraordinarily important. I mean, we can talk about positive, negative, and neg or positive leverage or negative leverage. And so, by being uh, a pain in your rear end, I mean, I get some leverage with that. You might decide this is so uncomfortable, I just want to give up or walk away. It's not an effective tool across the board. It becomes kind of like the adage, you know, if the only tool you have is a hammer. Uh, but here's what I find with humility and compassion and likability, and this is dramatically different than I believed as a litigator and certainly different than I believed early in my mediation career is I find without humility I can't listen. Um, if, if, and, and I think we all have agendas, even mediators. I'm, I'm very careful about not using the word neutrality because I'm not sure that we can really claim that, but, but, I, but I get it. But I find with, without humility I can't listen and I'm, and I'm judging people and preparing responses and even when I'm the, the person in the middle I'll start painting people in a certain way. Um, and I, if I could be humble, then I can keep, I can hang on to that, that idea that I believe to be true is that we are all nuanced. I mean, even when you read horrible things about what somebody might have done in the paper, um, I don't know that that's all they've done. I mean, I, I believe there are some other parts of them. That one is overridden and that may be bad enough that they get removed from society and other things. But I find I, I want to listen differently. Um, and what I call radical listening, listening open to the possibility I might be wrong. So that, that's the first one with humility. The compassion piece, and if we think about Compassion and its its real meaning it's to be with suffering, um, and if I and, and when I think of suffering I tend to think about extreme things somebody that's really ill or has suffered a horrible injury or something like that, but we're suffering a little bit anytime we're uncomfortable. Uh, so when people come into a mediation or a negotiation and and neither side knows what the outcome is going to be even if it's just two people negotiating negotiating over a car. There's some level of discomfort. I mean, the salesperson wants to sell a car and make some money. The person buying the car wants to buy the car, but doesn't want to be paid, played for a fool. Um, so there's some discomfort there. So if I can be compassionate with the person, um, then I have an ability to relate to them a little bit more uh, without judging them. 
And the final piece on likability, if, if I can be likable, and, and maybe even more importantly, find reasons to like them, then I'm going to communicate better with them. There's not going to be the distraction that, that comes up when my voice tightens a little bit because they've just said something that offends me or something like that. And I've and I found in mediations, there are times when people say really incredibly offensive things. I mean, things I'm thinking, I, I don't think I would ever want to be a friend with this person. Um, and yet there is more to them there. And I'm not the school principal in that setting to be pointing my finger at somebody saying, I can't believe you said that, I'm offended. Uh, being offended and acting offended are two different things. And there may be times that are extreme that you need to respond in a certain way. But I've got my little, it's kind of like the, the, the phrase they use with families. The reason families can push your buttons so well is because they installed them. Um, and those buttons are out there for people to push, even though the people I'm mediating with aren't my family. We've been talking a lot about external negotiation, you know, you mediating between other parties and how you're interacting with them. Um, in, your, in your book, you also talk really about inter the, solving the internal conflict before being able to bring that out into the, into the room. Could you just, I think you, you talked a little bit about it in talking about humility and, and compassion, but the conversations that we have with ourselves. There is almost, almost always the person I wish to be and the person I turn out to be in any circumstance. I mean, like, like this interview. Um, there's the preparation I did, there's the actual interview, and there's the brilliant interview I'll do on the way home. Um, and, and, and I find that that's almost always true. Um, and the internal conflict is kind of, I really mean it when I get up in the morning and tell you I want to lose five pounds. Uh, but when that chocolate cake is there at the end of the day and my willpower is low, I still want to lose five pounds, but not as much as I want the chocolate cake. So that's the internal conflict. There are, there are almost always trade-offs that we are making. I mean, if, I'm, if I've been up particularly late um, and I've got an early morning appointment, I, I can go ahead and sleep in and the sleeping might feel good, but at the trade-off of having not met a commitment that I kept with somebody else. So it's painful to get up, uh, but it's also painful to stay in bed. And I think what we often forget at many times in our life with internal conflicts and external conflicts is there are times when pain is unavoidable. There simply is not a pain-free option. Um, and I find it's true in relationships. It's often true in mediations. It's true in negotiations. Uh, and the, the when I talk to students about the most unreal part of a negotiation class, it's the fact that we debrief afterwards. I mean, after we finish a negotiation, we don't go talk to the other side and say, boy, I really would have paid you $1,000, but you, know, you took 500 or the other way around. And thank goodness, I mean, I want people going down separate elevators when mediations are over because I don't want them having those little conversations with each other. Uh, so, I, I, But I think the internal conflicts... We have them every day. And, when, when you, and many people have talked about this and written about this, and I was thinking about it just, just the other day. Um, I stayed to do one more thing in my office, and it made me late for an appointment uh, that I was going to. And, the one more, cause, and I thought I could do more in the period of time that I had, and it could only be on me. And I got in the car, and I screamed at myself, Sam, you idiot. I, don't, I can't think of the last time I screamed at anybody they were an idiot um, other than myself. Um, so I think those those little conflicts are, are, are there all the time, and they're they come out in all all sorts of little ways. Like I can tell you, uh, you know, my my priority is my family. Well, my wife and I were talking about this today. Our the daughters are all grown, but we, we were talking about how many times they didn't see me at all in a day or days because I left early in the morning in the dark, and I got back late at night in the dark. Um, and though, and so, but I would still have told you that my family was my priority. Well, it was a priority. 
but I'm balancing it all the time with work. And so if you watch the amount of time that I worked versus the amount of time that I was home with my family, um, you might have said, wow, it doesn't look like it. Now, I'm not telling you that with, with deep regret or all kinds of guilt or anything, although there are some tinges of that. Uh, but those were the choices that I was making. And it's again, it's more nuanced than just is work more important or family more important because they blend with one another. But those internal conflicts, and sometimes I find they come out when I, with an agenda I didn't know I had. And I, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, but and I forget whether, whether we've talked about it, but I was sitting at the kitchen table with my wife one morning. Um, and let me take a step back because I find most of the things we learn about negotiations and most of these principles, we can learn in our everyday conversations. If we pay attention to the physicality of it and the emotion of it um, and the way our thinking works. So I'm sitting at the kitchen table with my wife, which is the way we often start our day. We're having a cup of coffee and talking. And, um, and, I, and I was telling her about an employment decision we'd made at the office. Um, and I said, what do you think about it? Um, and she paused and she looked at me and she said, well, and she started telling me. And the longer she talked, the more angry I became. And I don't mean pound the table, crazy man angry, but I, I was really irritated. And she could tell I was irritated, even though I wasn't responding. I'm twitching in the chair and I'm kind of leaning forward. And, and she said, I don't get it. She said, all you did was ask me a question about something I'm not even involved in. I'm telling you what I think and you're mad. And, and in that moment, the light bulb went off and I thought, it never occurred to me that you would reach a different conclusion than I had. So I wasn't really asking her for a, her opinion, even though I thought I was. I wasn't conscious of what I was doing. I was so unaware. Um, I was wanting her to, to rubber stamp the decision I'd already made that I thought was unassailable. Um, and, and that, I find, happens all the time, but I often don't realize it until I think, boy, Sam, you're, you're irritated with this person, or you're kind of squirming a little bit, or you, you're really wanting to talk over the top of them. Um, and that, that discloses to me the agenda I didn't know I had, which then often reveals an internal conflict, that maybe I was struggling more with that employment decision than I thought I was. What you're saying is also really thematic for me in terms of all talking not being categorized as the same thing, meaning that when someone's speaking, it might be helpful to say, are you looking for a listening partner or are you looking for my advice? Because I think sometimes we assume that each talking turn, that it's just talking, it all falls under this category. But each time we're speaking, even forms of evaluation and feedback have different subsections. And it's very unclear what we're doing, especially in the, the public squares. What are we doing? How should we talk? Who goes first? And that kind of thing. Um, Gwen, I just want to check in with you and see if you have any thoughts here before we go ahead. So Sam, you just mentioned that some of the time you, you catch yourself and, and part of it is because you know that you're uncomfortable or that there's something beyond thought that's going on. Could you say a little bit more about the physicality of negotiation? What I've found is that my body will often recognize things before my brain processes them. Uh, and so if I pay attention to my own dysfunction, or not, not dysfunction, my, my own bodily responses. Uh, so if my palms get a little bit sweaty, if I feel my heart rate go up, if I can see that my face is flushing some, um, those kind of things, or if I just feel that the discomfort, the not, that knot, um, that's a good time for me to, to stop and think, okay, what's going on here? I mean, th this is something I've done thousands of times. Why am I uncomfortable? Um, is, it, is it about my response to what something's, somebody's doing? Have I moved three steps ahead? And I'm and I back to the fear part, and I'm afraid. Uh oh, we're not going to get this done today. Um, am I am I missing something there? So, and I'm not saying that I always need to share those like I did 
with my wife, if they're showing and I appear to be angry with somebody, then I, I need to own that and have that conversation. But I find it, it's all, like you'll hear people say sometimes, I want you to just set aside your emotions and be rational. Um, our emotions are part of our rationality. Um, and when I'm telling somebody that, I'm suggesting that their emotions are inappropriate emotions. And if they just thought like I did, we could move the way we wanted to move. So that all, speaking of bodily, bodily um, responses, most people get a little stirred up when you tell them that. Because they're saying, well, they're, they're saying that I'm unreasonable. They're saying I'm overly emotional. They're saying I'm not thinking well. So I've probably created, at least at a minor level, maybe a more major level, a physical response in them. And you guys have probably read as much literature as I have. But once people get angry and you get those, those chemicals running in your brain and your body, it can take 20 minutes to four hours for people to get back to baseline where they wish to be to deal with difficult things and make decisions that are important to them. Uh, and and I it's and I guess maybe it's our maybe it's kind of in the in the Western world we want to discount the the power of emotion and, and how it matters, uh, but I think that the physical piece is really important. I think the thinking piece is important. I think the rational piece is important. I'm talking about them as pieces. They're all swimming together. They they, they aren't these separate things. But I want to be aware of all three of them and not act like any of them is unimportant. Well, and I there there's. Do you remember, golly, it's probably been three years ago now when uh, there was that United Airlines flight and there was a doctor that had gotten on the flight and the uh, it, it turned out that the United Airlines needed the seats to get a crew from Chicago to Louisville, so they told him he had to leave his seat. Do you remember that, seeing that there was video of the security guards actually dragging this guy off the plane? And this kind of goes along with my idea of, of righteous anger. So you've got somebody that bought a ticket on, on United Airlines and he goes through security, and he, and he goes through the gate, and he gets his seat. And then some people come on and tell him, well, you know, sir, sorry, but, but this seat is, and we need a seat for something else. Now, when we buy our plane tickets, we're agreeing to do all kinds of things we didn't know that we were agreeing to do. And we've got to comply with whether it's the, the, uh, the airline's um, own re requirements or the government's requirements for getting people on and off planes. But in this case, everybody had reason to think they were right. Right? I mean, th this guy gets on the plane and he thinks, um, I'm on the plane, I'm, I've got to be back in Louisville where my practice is and I'm going to do what I need to do. And then the security people come on that were asked by the airline, say, I'm sorry, sir, you've got to leave. He says, no, um, I'm not. And they ultimately drag him off the plane. And you've got people, as we do now, because everybody has smartphones, videotaping the security people as they take him off the plane. And then the next day, the United Airlines pre president says, well, he had a duty to get off. I mean, no compassion at all. I mean, it was a total public relations mess. But, but that's kind of when, when, when I say in the book and other places, being right is really expensive and way overrated. Everybody here had a reason to think they were right. I mean, the airline had the rules. They had the law. They had the policies and procedures in place. This guy didn't know anything about that. Um, and the decision they made was to escalate and escalate and escalate. And nobody jumped in to change it. I mean, and, Whatever way there could have been, but something, needed, and it came down to kind of the lowest common denominator of negotiation, which is brute force. I mean, these three security people were much more able of removing that, that doctor from the plane than he was in fighting and staying on. And it also traumatized all the people on the plane. Um, nobody stepped, there was no humility, there was no compassion, and likability went out the window when the security people entered the plane. Um, and even after that, with somebody who's as bright as I'm sure the United Airlines president was, with PR and HR people, they still came up with a with a really land with a clunk response to it. Um, so uh, 
but that's part of the physicality part. I mean, I would guess if we had blood pressure cuffs on, on all of those people that were participating in that, as well as the people on the plane, everybody was having a physical response to what was going on. And unfortunately, Sam, United Airlines is one of our biggest sponsors, so we're going to have to cut all of this. <laughs> That's okay. And I've got, I'm flying United Airlines <laughs> yeah. to Denver on Friday, so I'm not, yeah. I'm, no. you know what? United Airlines is nuanced, just like the rest right. of us. You know, honestly, honestly a, a beautiful, a beautiful comment there for sure. And for me, this also falls under this category of how and not what, right? That you can be right. You can have legitimate authority on your side, Um and that people will accept outcomes that you might not believe they would accept all because of how someone went about it and the respect they conferred in doing so. Um, and I definitely hear you. I don't know if it's about, you know, the West's idea of the power of emotion and how we think it's dichotomous about rationality or emotion. Um, I'm not sure why so many of the things that make a mediator or negotiator talented are also synonymous with weakness to some degree. Um, something that stood out to me was the last chapter of your book, Standing Up for Yourself. And I'm not sure about your thoughts. I'm curious about them. My feeling is that people in my generation and younger um, are coming up against a nihilism um, and an almost uh, fashionable self-deprecation, even self-hatred, um, that I'm wondering for those of us, of course, this I'm not describing myself at all, but for those of us who struggle with anxiety or depression um, and those who, of us who have internal critics that are pretty severe, why does it seem so ridiculous that we would stand up for ourselves? Um, and, and what would you suggest to someone in this category in terms of being able to do it? That chapter was not originally in the book. The editor finished it and she said, you're too soft. You need to tell people how to stand up for themselves. I said, well, I, I would be one of millions and not the expert on how to stand up for yourself. But we but we certainly added the chapter. Um, I, I think so many things are... Uh, really in our lives, they're cooperative. I mean, we're not on the edge of our, hopefully we're not living our lives, we're on the edge of our seats with anxiety about things we have to negotiate or conflicts we have to face. Um, but we do have some, and, and when, when we talk in, in classes about, you know, that bully negotiator, that person that's overly competitive, I'm, I'm, it's why we talk about best alternative to a negotiated agreement. I mean, sometimes it's not safe to negotiate with somebody. I mean, the best decision you can make is, I'm not doing this. I don't know what the consequences will be of not doing it, but the consequences of doing it are too grave and I cannot do it. Um, so, but, but I think, and this kind of goes back to the physical part, because I am so comfortable being comfortable, if I'm a little bit uncomfortable, I think, well, I need not to do this. Um, I, I, need, I need to just run away. This conflict isn't worth it. And I think that's, that's the piece where people knowing themselves, they can get better at. I've, I've got a friend who's an organizational psychologist. He said, the optimal amount of stress is not zero. It's not me up on a mountain meditating, even though I greatly value meditation. Um, if I'm going to interact with the world, there are going to be things that happen that I don't expect. Um, there are going to be trade-offs for me to make. Uh, and I can decide, do I think my trade-offs or what I want is more important than what somebody else wants? And am I willing to ask and be told no? I mean, am I, am I so afraid of a no answer or somebody disagreeing with me that I'm not even going to put it out there as an alternative to whatever whatever we might be facing, whether that's in a partners meeting I might have with my law partners here or somewhere else. And so then I think what happens so often is I have the whole conversation in my head. So I think, okay, here's what I would say. Here's what they're going to say. Uh, they're going to be angry. It's not worth it. I'm going to do this. And I haven't even given them an opportunity. I am so uncomfortable with facing the possibility that they might disagree with me 
that I don't, and, and I can't tell you how often I am surprised by what people I say, even people that I know. I'm, my wife and I have been married for 39 years, and I was telling someone the other day, I'm delighted that there are still times I discover I don't know everything. I don't know everything about how she's going to respond, how she's going to act. And now sometimes the response is not what I want in a way that I don't appreciate as much, but other times it absolutely delights me. Um, and if I can keep that in mind with other people, say, okay, I'm going to be disappointed sometimes, whether it's at work or in a mediation. Um, I mean, when, when you're talking with people about things that are hugely important to them, um, to suggest that I know exactly what they're going through or how they're going to respond is horribly arrogant. I'd, I'd be full of hubris to do that. And that's why, and I told Gawandi's the first place I read them basically was in his book, Being Mortal. I love those three questions. What do you want? What are your biggest fears and concerns? And what trade-offs are you willing to make? Um, and I find repeatedly people are much better at telling me, as I am them, what I don't want because the question feels so broad. Fears and concerns, I'm probably more willing to talk to you about my concerns than my fears because the word fear makes me feel a little too vulnerable. But then once you've gotten there, if people will at least have that conversation on a surface level, then we can talk about trade-offs. And if you're talking with an adult who's got some tread on their wear on their tires, um, they, can, they will have experiences where they know they can't get everything they want. And again, this is a place where I tend to keep the word compromise out of it because I find compromise can feel so loaded, particularly in, in high-stakes negotiations with people. I'll say, okay, what trade-offs trade might you be willing to make? And among the most difficult things I find for students in talking about negotiation, it does play into to standing up for yourself, is in a, it actually, in a totally unrelated way, I, the, the quote comes from a Michael Pollan book, uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma, and he says, the mistake we make is to think that all we do know is all we can know. And the place I find it with students is they'll do these negotiations and they're, I mean, they're created with facts that are real life situations. They go to negotiate them. They, it is so scary sometimes for them to ask questions to find out what might be outside their facts and change the preparation they've done that they don't even want to ask. If they can just jump to numbers and terms really quickly that they can, and they see, oh, there's, gonna, there, there's a zone of possible agreement here. There, there's going to be some overlap. They kind of get the endorphin rush and their shoulders go down and they're a little bit more relaxed, which is all natural. I've got, I, I am no different than the students in doing that. But being willing, part of, part of standing up for yourself is being willing to hear some things that are uncomfortable. It's being willing to take some risks. And even though we can't ever know completely, uh, I've got some kind of an idea of the guardrails are still up on my risks. The, the risk isn't I'm going to get fired. The risk isn't my relationship is going to end. The risk isn't that... I'm going to get killed or, or be in some way horribly insecure. But, and I'm sorry I've gone around the barn so many times to get there to your question. Um, but I think standing up for yourself um, really requires some thoughts. And it goes back to, to kind of full circle a little bit to the physicality part. I mean, I, I am going to naturally seek comfort. It's, it's just who I am. It's what my brain wants. And if I see comfort out there, I'm going to rationalize almost anything to get back to the comfort place. So I've got to choose discomfort. Sometimes it's, it's imposed upon me, but there are times when I have to choose it. Or I might realize in that moment, this is a pain is unavoidable place. When you think about people in relationships, whether it's their romantic relationships, their work relationships, and I've talked to, when I used to do family law mediations, which has been a long time ago, I've had more than one person do what I said. They had both conversations in their head because the idea of stepping into the discomfort of exploring the relationship was more uncomfortable than simply deciding to end it. 
They, they were better off in their minds saying, I know what he's going to say. I know what she's going to say. I know what they're going to say. Um, I've played it all out in my head. They're not going to do what I want them to do. There's no way this relationship can work. So I'm just going to end it. Um, and I, again, I don't want to be overly critical of those people because I've done the same things. Uh, but that requires us to step into that discomfort in a way that is not natural for most of us, if you're going to stand up for yourself. One of the examples I use in the book is the woman with one of her coworkers. Um, she's, she's wondering what to do with this coworker who's kind of loud and hail fellow well met, and she's a quiet person. Does she talk to her coworker? Does she look for, for another job? Um, what, what, I mean, that, that's a courageous decision to make. I'm going to step into this fear that's different from my personality. I like this job. I don't know how this person's going to respond. I'm a little bit insecure, but I'm going to think about it, and I'm going to step into that conversation. I'm going to explore whether I can find a way to live with this job, maybe even enjoy this job, but boy, does it scare me to have the conversation. Yeah, and the other end of the spectrum of, of fear, I think sometimes when people have those internal conversations, it can go in the other direction of um, it, it, it kicks in, I think you call it the, the um, justice gene. Um, could you say a little bit more about that? I think it's apropos of some of the ways that we're thinking politically these days. I think we all, I don't know that the, that the scientists have found it, but I think we all have the justice gene and it, and it resides somewhere deep in our bellies. Um, and I, I know it when it gets tweaked or bruised. I don't even know that it's, that it's kind of hanging out there, but I know it when it gets tweaked or bruised. I know it when I'm driving and somebody cuts me off in traffic. I know it when I'm in the deli line and I've followed the rules and I've got my number and somebody walks right up to the counter and gets their, their sliced turkey in front of me. Um, and then I've got the decision to make. Am I going to call them out on it or say, this is just the deli line. Let's not worry about this. Um, and, and the way it can play out dramatically, and I, I remember reading this years ago, there were there were people standing in line with their children to see Santa Claus, and somebody cut in line, and the two fathers got in an argument. One of them killed the other one. I mean, so that, that justice gene and that that adrenal response can be so huge. Uh, the, the one I remember for me is I was standing in line at the Verizon store on a Sunday afternoon, and there's something about just going into the Verizon store that rose, raised my blood pressure. Um, and so I'm standing in line, and I've got my ticket, and there are a bunch of people there, and all of a sudden, Three people come in who are um, athletes in the town where I live, and they went right to the front of the line. And I could just feel it. And I did everything that was the opposite of what I would suggest. Um, I yelled at the person, and I said, yeah, I've been here before them. And then I said what was totally stupid. I said, I'm going to leave and go to AT&T. Well, one, they couldn't have cared less. One, one less Verizon customer doesn't matter. And two, it was a lie. Because I had four phones on this plan, and going to AT&T was going to be a huge pain in the butt. Um, but so kind of the, the you know, acronyms are helpful to me. So what I find when my justice gene gets tweaked, if, if, if the lion is not really chasing me, but I'm still feeling that kind of discomfort, I think of the term PARC, P-A-R-C. And that's pause, assess, reflect, and choose. Um, and sometimes you can do that really quickly in the moment, and other times it takes a little bit more time, and whether it's standing up for yourself or otherwise, to say, okay, I need to pull away from this. It's, it's kind of like when you call, uh, whether it's the airlines or whether it's a hotel chain or, or make it whatever you want, your, your home service provider for your internet. They are the only people that have what you want. So you might think it's unfair. Don't they know how important my time is? They, they tell me it's two hours to wait in this line, and then they say they're going to call me back, but are they really? Um, but But... But back to realizing, say, and, and also that person on the other end of the phone, they've got a really hard job. 
because they've got people like me who are impatient, who feel entitled, who are paying their bills and think, why can't you fix this problem for me? Um, and, and so, again, they're the only people that have what I want, so I want to be really, really kind to them. Um, I still will vent my friend. I'll say, boy, I know this isn't your fault. This has been really hard. Can you tell me anything I can do that makes this job easier for you so we can both get what we want? Um, and other times I'm just impatient. But I really like that notion of park. And, and I like to think of it whenever I find that impatient, squirming, entitled response coming up in me, whether I'm in traffic or somewhere else. You've, you've probably listened to um, David Foster Wallace's graduation uh, speech at Kenyon College. Um, he does a lovely job in 22 minutes uh, of talking about the human condition and responses to the human condition. And among the things I like best about that, that is also so profoundly sad, is that this enormous, thoughtful, kind, compassionate wisdom um, is delivered by a person that ultimately um, died by suicide. Um, and, and it is, so those moments when I think, you have the stripes to explain something to me or give me an opinion, but somebody else doesn't. I want to keep in mind that if I can radically listen, everybody has the stripes. The, the person who may have been married seven times um, may have great advice about what it is to be a better partner in a relationship. Somebody who's never had children may have really great observations about rearing children. Um, and I don't want to exclude anybody from that process. My, this is... I think those of us that give advice uh, sometimes are too quickly to offer it. Um, and I've got a, a, a great friend who speaks to me candidly and, and, and usually more gently than I speak. And, and he said, Sam, the fact that a lot of people ask you for your advice doesn't mean all of us want it. Um, and, and I really, he, now he says in retrospect, as, as he's heard me say that back to him and how, how, how important it was for me to hear that, he said, I didn't say that nearly as harshly as you heard it. Um, but I clearly needed to hear it, and I'm glad I did. Well, Sam, it's in a way perfect for you to bring up David Foster Wallace um, because it leads me to the question that I think a lot in my experience thus far in the negotiation world, which is are the negotiation professionals and experts on average worse negotiators or people who struggle more with conflict? I'm thinking there's some quote from a writer that um, – something like a writer is a person for whom writing is more difficult. And that's often how I feel. I'm someone that entered the field after a really painful negotiation in which I was unskillful and suffered consequences. I'm curious what you think about that and, and why so many of us who find ourselves here having these conversations are also people who have, um, you know, our limits and shortcomings in them. I, I think everybody is limited um, and everybody has some skills. Um, it, it's uh there's a guy named Amit Sood who deals with uh, resilient. He was at the Mayo Clinic, and now he, he does full-time consulting about resilience. And, and his, his ongoing refrain is, everybody's special and everybody suffers. Uh, and just in terms of his description of the human condition. Um, I, I think some of us are more comfortable with negotiations, maybe because we're oblivious to some of our shortcomings. Um, I think some people that are more introspective can also be more self-critical um, and restrict themselves from entering some situations, whether it's training or negotiating or just relationships, because they've thought about it so doggone much. Um, it's kind of like that old phrase, you don't, you don't think your way to good living, you live your way to right thinking. Um, and, and I have found that behavioral practice is really important for me. It, it is, I, I am slow to change my thinking 
But if somebody can give me something concrete to do, I can at least practice that incrementally, and then I'll gather information, and my thinking may actually change as I do it. So I don't know whether people that, that teach it or who are drawn to it are necessarily more or less skilled, because um, I find they're all over the map. Um, I mean, I don't find that old phrase that, um, you know, those who do do and those who can't teach, I, I've not found that to be true. I find teachers can be good doers and doers can be good teachers. Um, and if I pay attention, I mean, we really are, even the people that are most competitive negotiators may not recognize that they're in a collaboration, but they are. Um, and if I can keep that in mind and say, okay, what can I do to engage this person in a way that doesn't tweak their competitive juices so much that I, I've got, that I tweak, that I, that I am the problem in keeping this conversation from happening. I put some judgment on them that they're behaving inappropriately, they're being bullies, they're whatever adjectives I wish to use, and then I can use that as an excuse to give up. That, and when I say both sides have a part in it, I mean, I think no conflict or negotiation happens if I just say I'm not going to do it, right? I mean, there, if I give you what you want, there's no, there's no conflict, there's nothing to negotiate. But if I stay engaged in some way, then there's a chance that something can happen. So my part is simply the fact that I choose to engage. Maybe better, maybe worse than that other person. Maybe more or less effectively. But I think that's my part in every, every time. That's great. Um, Sam, I want to thank you so much for joining us. And we highly recommend Sam's book, Positively Conflicted. And I think the subtitle is particularly apropos right now. Engaging with courage, compassion, and wisdom in a combative world. Thank you so much for, for talking to us and sharing, Sam. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Gwen, what a lovely conversation um, from which I'm taking many things. Uh, two that are standing out are the qualities that people think a negotiator has and that are most important thinking about knowledge, clarity, and patience, which of course are great and important, um, but also thinking about the unsung heroes of likability, humility, and compassion, which are often the X factors in negotiators and negotiations. Um, and I think culturally, I'm continuously curious on, on how to rebrand negotiation, and I think Sam does a really fantastic job of not just explaining it, but you know, even in specifically the story about Dan Kahneman, you know, a Nobel Prize winner who studied the brain perhaps more than anyone else, having his own brain malfunctions and that being par for the course and that being what we're up against. So I really appreciated the humility embedded in, in all of that. And again, with all the experience he brings, I just thought that was an incredible conversation. I agree. And, and the idea of humility and compassion is sometimes, I think, surprising to people when we talk about negotiation. I don't know about you, but when people hear that I teach negotiation, they often want to know what are the tricks to get over on yeah. the other person. Yeah. And when I say things like listening, understanding the other person's interests, having humility, having compassion for the your counterpart, uh, I think it goes, it's sort of countercultural to how some people see negotiation. 100%, 100%. And we could, parenthetically, we could stop it right there. Um, but if <laughs> I'm also just thinking, so many of the insights that we talk about push or don't pull push, um, you know, listening, being the most persuasive move is really counterintuitive. 
And I, I think that in some ways one of the reasons that I think it's so interesting is that if most people are negotiating based on what culture tells them, based on what they've heard or assume about negotiation, they're actually getting bad advice. They're getting advice that leads to worse outcomes and to more negative conflict. Um, and so, yeah, I just think it's, it's, really, it's really interesting and important to highlight the role of humility and compassion because these are not the things we think about when we talk about negotiation typically. Yeah, and another interesting thing I think, and I think we talked about it a little bit in the episode, and certainly in Sam's book, Positively Conflicted, the idea that external conflict often arises because there's internal conflict. And that before we sit down and set a strategy for a negotiation or get into a negotiation, to be able to really analyze and deal with our own internal conflict in the situation, we're often our interests are often very conflicted within us. And I'm um, an admirer of everyone we have on this show. And, and something that I particularly like about Sam is, you know, the way he talks about himself and the, the personal examples and even, you know, articulating the internal conflicts of, you know, you, you want to lose however many pounds and you want the chocolate cake and really highlighting the role of trade-offs. Negotiation is about trade-offs and that we're always making them. And so I, I just think it's really nice to have someone, again, with thousands of cases under their belt, to, to be kind of honest about how internal conflict and ego shows up for everyone. Well, this has been another great episode of Trainer Talk. Uh, thanks so much to our guest, Sam Argery. Please join us on our next episode where we'll have Jody Shire as our guest. Jody is a well-known therapist, teacher, and interestingly, one of the creators of the interpersonal skills exercise. And we're going to talk to Jody about the creation of that exercise and how it's used today. You've been listening to Trainer Talk. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you'll join us again. And until next time, happy negotiating.